0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 63. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this very early in the morning on March 8, 2022, in Austin, Texas. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. At the suggestion of devoted listener Anthony from Seattle... I'll punt all the usual stuff about subscribing, liking, spreading the word, and sending me emails to the end of the episode, but do all that stuff anyway. Thank you for all your support. In the last couple of months, we've been averaging more than 5,000 downloads and listens a week, which frankly humbles me. First, a note unrelated to this week's episode— As I've mentioned before, I occasionally say one thing when I mean another. I mean, really, who doesn't? Which I think of as an oral typo or maybe just a brain fart or something. Usually I catch them on a listen-through before I upload the episode, and if they aren't too difficult to fix, I'll record over the error. A couple of weeks ago, though, I made a mistake that Travis from Idaho Springs, Colorado, helpfully pointed out in an email. I said that Champlain's first settlement on St. Croix Island in Maine was just over the border from Nova Scotia. Of course, that's wrong. I meant New Brunswick. I'd been staring at maps of the region for weeks by that point. But there you go. Thank you, Travis. Okay, back to the 17th century we go. In 1600, there were only two European settlements in today's United States— both established by Spain. They were St. Augustine in Florida and a small outpost in New Mexico under Don Juan de Añate. Then everybody and their brother would come to North America. By the end of the first decade of the 1600s, Jamestown would be well on its way, though with much death and destruction still in front of it. Don't worry, we'll get to that. Both the English and the French had established fairly short-lived settlements in Maine, but both would return. And Champlain had explored the coast of New England three times, discovered and named Lake Champlain, camped in western Vermont, and with Canadian-Indian allies had whipped a much larger Mohawk force at the site of today's Ticonderoga, New York. At the end of the decade, the Spanish had established Santa Fe in today's New Mexico course, if you've listened to the last 11 episodes, you know all of that. The Dutch, in a ship called the Half Moon, under the command of an English captain named Henry Hudson, would be the next to arrive in that very busy summer of 1609. Hudson sailed under the auspices of the Dutch East India Company and came to North America in contravention of his strict orders to sail in the opposite direction, northeast to China over the top of Russia. Hudson would get in trouble with more or less everybody for this, but Dutch settlement in North America began shortly thereafter, and so his long-term impact on American history would be profound. A little background is in order before we sail up the Hudson River, so let's pull out the wide-angle lens for a minute. The story begins in the 1550s, which we covered all the way back in episode 31, if you can believe it, England in the 1500s and the rise of the merchant adventurers. England had been going through wrenching economic changes and needed new markets for its most important export, woolen cloth. English investors and the intellectuals they sponsored began looking for their own route to the markets of Asia. When various expeditions to find a northwest passage over the top of North America failed, Merchant adventurers looked for a northeast passage over the top of Russia, then a remote country that had been out of contact with England for centuries. The English obviously failed to find a northeastern route to Asia, but they did establish trade relations with Ivan the Terrible. After various catastrophes, the Muscovy Company, officially the Merchant adventurers of England for the discovery of lands, territories, isles, dominions, and seigneuries unknown came to control an extremely lucrative trade with Russia that would make it a lot of money over most of the next 40 years. By the end of the century, however, the Russian trade was flagging. The Muscovy Company needed a new act. So in the first decade of the 1600s, it restarted its program of exploration. To lead that program, it recruited an experienced English captain, one Henry Hudson. For someone with a name familiar to virtually everyone who has set foot in North America or even looked at a map of it, we know very little about Henry Hudson. There are virtually no records of his life before he set to sea as a captain for the Muscovy Company in 1607, but he must have been an experienced sailor to have been entrusted with command. Hudson personally knew the leading lights of early English colonialism, including such men as Richard Hacklite, who was by the early 1600s the most prominent public intellectual for English adventurism abroad, and a signing principal investor of the Virginia Company. And he knew explorers such as George Weymouth and John Smith. Indeed there had been several Hudsons involved with the Muscovy Company in recent decades and Henry is believed to be but not known for certain to be related to them. We also know that Hudson was extremely ambitious, racked by self-doubt and depression, that's always a good combination, and almost entirely unaware of how he was perceived, personality attributes that would eventually lead to his very sad demise. Before we get to those early voyages Hudson sailed for the Muscovy Company and the story of Hudson finding himself working for the Dutch East India Company, let's review the geopolitics of the era, since it's been a few months since we covered it. The Dutch and the English had long been allies against imperial Spain. Spain's Philip II was the most important Catholic ruler in the world, and he led the fight on earth against the heresy of Protestantism. The Spanish monarch... Notionally controlled the Netherlands, but the Protestant nobles and merchants there fought a decades-long war to free themselves of Spanish rule. England, under Elizabeth I, was the most important Protestant country, but far less powerful and much poorer than Spain. Elizabeth had been fighting a cold war of containment against Philip since she had ascended to the throne at the end of 1558. England supported proxies fighting against the Spanish wherever possible including the Huguenots and the French Wars of Religion and the Dutch Rebels. When the Cold War with Spain exploded into a hot war after Francis Drake's mission to the West Indies in 1585 and 86, the English-Dutch alliance would become even more important. The Dutch sea beggars, think of them as seaborne minute men, which is kind of a cool concept, would play a crucial role in pinning down the Spanish troop barges that were supposed to cross the English Channel from the Netherlands as the Armada sailed from Spain. By the early 1600s, however, peace had broken out. Henry IV of France settled the religious wars in his country, and Spain, England, and the Dutch Republic ended their long wars. With Protestantism safe and the war with Spain over, The alliance between England and the Dutch would become competition, and then rivalry, and finally, by the middle of the 1600s, enmity. Even by 1600, the Dutch had emerged as the preeminent naval power, with a fleet that only a few years later would exceed those of England and France combined. In 1599, the Dutch had already attacked Portuguese possessions in the Far East, grabbing Java, Sumatra, and the Malaysian Peninsula. Their fleet had returned with 600,000 pounds of pepper and an equal amount of nutmeg, cloves, and other immensely valuable spices. In 1602, the Dutch East India Company had been capitalized, which by some reckonings would eventually become the largest business corporation ever to have existed. The Dutch were the fastest rising power in Europe. Bear all of that in mind. We shall return to it shortly. Hudson's first voyage for the Muscovy Company of London departed in April 1607. Given what we know today, it was insane, but at the time was considered perfectly plausible. Recall that various English explorers, starting with John Cabot, he was Italian, but sailing for the English, and continuing through the various frustrating voyages of Martin Frobisher, had failed to find a Northwest Passage from England to Asia. The Northwest Passage had not been ruled out. Recall that Drake had been sent by Elizabeth to find the western end of it, the fabled Strait of Onion, in 1577. But by the early 1600s, the English were much more interested in possible middle passages to the Pacific, perhaps via one of the rivers flowing into the Chesapeake Bay or Delaware Bay. There was, however, a theory that the Arctic was ice-free in the summer, getting warmer as one approached the North Pole. The idea was that since the sun shined around the clock for months during the Arctic summer, in those months, there would be a relatively temperate zone at the top of the world and that if one could reach it, the sailing would be clear right across to Asia. So Hudson took the small ship Hopewell with a tiny crew, including his young son, John, straight north. Now let's turn to Russell Shorto's account from his book, The Island at the Center of the World, The Epic Story of Dutch Manhattan and the Forgotten Colony That Shaped America. Quote, Even more remarkable than Hudson's decision to attempt such a voyage was that he survived it. Slicing through fog and ice, living on bear and seal, at one point the crew fell sick from rotten bear meat, surviving vicious storms and the horror of a whale attempting to surface under the keel of their ship, they made it above 80 degrees latitude within 600 miles of the North Pole. Before Hudson noted dryly, "'This morning we saw that we were compassed in with ice in abundance.' And this, I can assure at present, by this way, there is no passage. By any normal measure, the voyage would have been considered a failure. But normalcy was out the window. It was now the 17th century. A vast new world was out there. Entrepreneurs and ship's captains knew that crossing one false path off the list was a form of progress. Far from considering his attempt a failure... For one thing, Hudson's report of many whales off Spitzbergen Island led to a massive and lucrative whaling enterprise there in the following years and, predictably, the decimation of the whale population. The company, immediately on his return in September 1607, signed him up to attack the problem again the next season. Back to me. The 1608 voyage would be to the northeast, another attempt to go over Russia. Hudson and the Hopewell sailed on April 22, 1608, just as the Jamestown and Popham colonies were emerging from their harrowing first winters on the coast of North America, and Champlain and the Sœur de Mont were sailing to the St. Lawrence and the future site of Quebec. By July, Hudson had reached novo Zemnia, a vast island of roughly 500 miles in length that reaches out from Russia's Arctic coast far to the north. Not surprisingly, he could not find a way around it. If you look at Google Maps, it reveals only a small passage of 35 miles between the island and the mainland. On July 6th, Hudson told his freezing and exhausted crew that rather than go home, they would turn around and look for a Northwest Passage. This idea was unpopular to the point of mutiny. So Hudson sailed back to London. Now back to Shorto, quote, At around this time, Hudson received letters from his friend and fellow explorer, the considerably larger-than-life John Smith. Smith sent Hudson maps of the North American coast, together with certain theories he'd been developing. These were precisely what Hudson wanted to hear. They conformed with his own theories that a sea or river somewhere to the north of Virginia gave out into the Sea of Cathay. Smith's information seems to have come from Indians who talked of a great ocean accessible via the Hudson River, presumably the Great Lakes, reachable via portage through the Mohawk River Valley. Suffice it to say, this was what Hudson was hoping to hear. Although, of course, Smith's report was vague and obviously would not have mentioned either the Hudson or the Mohawk Rivers by name, insofar as neither had yet been named, or at least by Europeans, or even explored by them. So it was that in late August, early September 1608, Hudson went to the offices of the Muscovy Company to pitch his new idea, a voyage to the Middle Atlantic coast of today's United States. He fully expected both authorization and funding, but he would be disappointed. We do not know why the Muscovy Company cut him loose. The records of the company were lost in the Great London Fire of 1666, the same fire that destroyed the map Francis Drake presented to Elizabeth I of his circumnavigation. But Hudson was out of a job. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. I suppose that required a trigger warning of some sort. Might be. Anyway, when one door closes, another opens. Now let's go back to Shorto. Quote, But Hudson had barely enough time to sink into the depression to which a psychologist might have diagnosed him as susceptible, before a new, unexpected avenue stretched open before him. Shortly after stepping out of the company's mansion into the glare of a summer day, he found himself accosted by a courtly, discreet, 72-year-old gentleman. Emmanuel van Metteren had been born in Antwerp. But when he was 15, his family moved to London, where he had lived ever since, acquiring an English education and an English sense of refinement, but remaining elementally Dutch. For the last 30 years, he had served as the Dutch consul in London and was on intimate terms with many of the prominent businessmen, aristocrats, and explorers in both countries. He had learned that the Muscovy Company was dropping Hudson, with his closeness to the directors of the company, he may have known it before Hudson did. The moment Van Meteren put his dignified presence before Hudson, he revealed the true scope of interest in the Mariner's obsession. It wasn't a matter of one ship's captain and the company he worked for. Hudson's quest was tied into the historic current washing over the powers of Europe, the self-conscious need... To blast out of the Mediterranean paradigm that had held them through the Middle Ages and to reach around the globe to discover, exploit, expand, do business. Van Meteren spoke on behalf of certain Dutch merchants who were desirous, seeing that his own countrymen had lost faith of abetting Hudson's ambition. In short, they wanted to hire him. Hudson made his way to Amsterdam before the end of September. It is difficult to overstate the energy in Amsterdam in 1608, at the dawn of the Dutch Republic's golden age. It was the first really open society in the Western world, and maybe the entire world. The Dutch traded with everybody, and Catholics and Protestants and Jews worked together to make money, creating an atmosphere of tolerance, by the standards of the early 17th century at least, an extraordinary creativity, and not just in business, Amsterdam would attract artists—very famous ones, of course—and intellectual refugees from around Europe, including Rene Descartes—I think, therefore I am, that guy—John Locke, and eventually William Bradford's separatists, who would go on to settle in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and call themselves Pilgrims. The Dutch East India Company, known as the VOC by virtue of its initials in the Dutch language— but set to work negotiating its deal with Hudson. As word got around, he was in great demand. The French tried to recruit him, and the English had second thoughts about cutting him loose. The VOC got cracking, and by the winter of 1608-09, had closed its deal. Hudson would get a new ship, the 85-foot half-moon, in English, and a crew of 16 men, half-English and half-Dutch. His orders were also clear. He was to look again for a northeast passage. There is no evidence that Hudson ever intended to obey them. At some point in Amsterdam, Hudson had gotten his hands on George Weymouth's journal, so he would sail with the wisdom of both Weymouth and Smith. The half-moon left Amsterdam on April 6, 1609, and half-heartedly sailed up the coast of Norway to the northeast. The ship quickly encountered stiff contrary winds, and that was all the justification Hudson needed to turn the ship around and head to the west and North America. All that would follow, New Amsterdam, New Netherland, and those names like Van Buren, Vanderbilt, and Roosevelt, would be the result of Hudson's disobedience. Weymouth had implicitly argued for a northwest passage through today's Hudson Bay, and yes, we'll get to that. Smith had suggested evidence for a mid-continent passage to the Pacific, perhaps up the river Henry Hudson was about to explore. On this voyage, after consulting the chilly crew high in the North Sea, Hudson followed Smith's southern theory, rather than Weymouth's proposed route through the Davis Strait. The half-moon sailed straight west by southwest via the Faroe Islands to Newfoundland, and then down the coast. They reached today's Nova Scotia on July 18th, just four days after Samuel de Champlain, two other Frenchmen, and 60 Indian allies had entered Lake Champlain from the north. The half moon stopped on the coast to replace a mast and productively traded for furs with the locals, who, as we have seen, had good relations with Champlain and the Sœur de Mont. But Hudson's crew would wear out its welcome. According to the subsequent narrative of Emmanuel van Metteren, the man who had recruited Hudson into the Dutch service, the crew behaved badly towards the people of the country, taking their property by force, out of which there arose quarrels among themselves. The English, fearing that between the two they would be outnumbered and worsted, were therefore afraid to pursue the matter further. In other words, the English and the Dutch had squabbled over the treatment of the Indians or the spoils of ill treatment of them. This was the first sign that Hudson and his men would not approach the Indians with the wisdom of Champlain or the empathy of Drake. Now sailing south, the half moon would come to within a few miles of Jamestown and Hudson's friend John Smith. His English first mate would note in his journal, this is the entrance into the King's River in Virginia. Where our Englishmen are. We don't know why Hudson didn't do the obvious thing and just go to Jamestown. We know a lot about what Hudson did on this voyage because of a fairly detailed narrative by Robert Jewett, one of his officers. But because Hudson's own journal is now lost, we have much less insight into why he did or didn't do things. Shorto speculates that he might not have felt it appropriate or comfortable to go to Jamestown flying under the flag of a Dutch company. He was, in effect, a competitor, but we don't know for sure. Hudson continued south as far as Cape Hatteras and then swung around to the north. On August 28, the half-moon came into Delaware Bay, its crew becoming the first European men recorded to have sailed west of Cape May, New Jersey. Verrazano had missed it back in 1524, and in the intervening 85 years, There was no other evidence of Europeans sailing there, even in the voluminous Spanish records. Sandings revealed dangerous shoals and sandbars and difficult navigation, however, so Hudson concluded that the Delaware Bay was unlikely to be the fast path to China. He continued north, passing Atlantic City on September 1st, and on the morning of September 2nd was sailing off Sandy Hook, New Jersey. There they fished and explored for a couple of days. On the 4th of September, the half-moon went softly aground on a sandbar, and the crew had their first encounter with the Indians of New Jersey. Quoting the narrative of Robert Jewett now, This day the people of the country came aboard of us, seeming very glad of our coming, and brought green tobacco, and gave us of it for knives and beads, They go in deerskins loose, well-dressed. They have yellow copper. They desire clothes and are very civil. They have great store of maize or Indian wheat, whereof they make good bread. The country is full of great and tall oaks. On September 5th, the high tide, the flood in Jewett's vocabulary and sailors of the time, came and the half-moon, floated off the sandbar, They had more encounters with local tribes and more trading. But Jewett reports without elaboration that they did not trust them. No doubt the feeling was mutual. On the sixth, Hudson sent the ship's boat to explore New York Harbor through the Verrazano Narrows and into upper New York Bay. On the way back, two canoes with 26 Indians between them attacked the boat. They shot an arrow through the throat of Englishman John Coleman and wounded two others. The boat rowed to and fro to escape the Indians, and it grew dark. They could not see the half-moon, and spent that night in something approximating terror in lower New York Bay. The morning of the 7th was fair, and as the sun rose, the men in the boat rowed toward the half-moon, well off in the distance, reaching it by 10 in the morning. They took Coleman's body ashore for burial. Historians differ on whether his grave lies on Sandy Hook Or Coney Island. On the 8th, they traded with Indians again, trying to detect any sign that these were the same who killed Coleman. On the 9th, there was another encounter, per Jewett. In the morning, two great canoes came aboard full of men, the one with their bows and arrows, and the other in show of buying of knives to betray us. But we perceived their intent. We took two of them to have kept them and put red coats on them. I would not suffer the other to come near us. So they went on land, and two others came aboard in a canoe. We took the one and let the other go, but he which we had taken got up and leapt overboard. Then we weighed and went off into the channel of the river, and anchored there all night. These encounters with the Indians would continue for the next three weeks, as the half-moon moved up the Hudson River and then returned. There might be trade, and sometimes it would be followed by hostility. We do not know whether the Indians around New York Harbor and up the Hudson Valley were hostile because they were culturally inclined to attack interlopers, or because of the posture of Hudson's men. The exchange on Nova Scotia certainly suggests that is a possibility, or because they had been warned about Europeans and ships. Of course, all three could be true at once. And it must be said, the farther up the Hudson the half-moon sailed, the more likely it would be that local tribes would have heard of Champlain's victory over the Mohawks at Ticonderoga, which had occurred only six and a half weeks before the half-moon reached the site of today's Albany. The distance from Ticonderoga to Albany is, after all, only 83 miles as the crow flies. By September 14th, the half-moon had reached West Point, And by the 18th, she was in range of suburban Albany, somewhere between New Baltimore and the capital area. On the 20th, the ship's carpenter went ashore to cut a tree for a new spar in the forward mast, and the Indians came on board. Drinks were served, quoting Jewett. And our master and his mate determined to try some of the chief men of the country, whether they had any treachery in them. So they took them down into the cabin and gave them so much wine and aqua vita that they were all merry. And one of them had his wife with him, which sat so modestly as any of our country women would do in a strange place. In the end, one of them was drunk, which had been aboard of our ship all the time that we had been there. And that was strange to them, for they could not tell how to take it. All we had was some beer and... Teeny-weeny glasses. How many teeny-weeny glasses did you have? Seventy-two. On September 22nd, they sent the boat north to sound the river. It traveled eight or nine leagues to the north, perhaps 30 miles, which would have taken it to the mouth of the Mohawk River or even north of it. The boat returned by 10 p.m. that night. The next morning, September 23rd, the half-moon sailed back down the Hudson. The encounters with the Indians occurred daily on the way down the river, mostly without hostility. By the 29th, the ship had reached the site of today's Poughkeepsie, and on the 30th, they reached Newburgh, which Jewett noted was a very pleasant place to build a town on. Then on October 1st, 1609, everything turned ugly. Quoting Jewett, "'The people of the mountains came aboard us, wondering at our ship and weapons.' We bought some small skins of them for trifles. This afternoon, one canoe kept hanging under our stern with one man in it, which we could not keep from thence, who got up by our rudder to the cabin window and stole out my pillow and two shirts and two bandoliers. Our master's mate shot at him and struck him in the chest and killed him. Whereupon all the rest fled away, some in their canoes, and so leapt out into the water." We manned our boat and got our things again. Then one of them that swam got hold of our boat, thinking to overthrow it, but our cook took a sword and cut off one of his hands, and he was drowned. They weighed anchor and sailed down river seven miles, and then anchored for the night of October 1st near Stony Point. The next morning they weighed anchor and sailed seven leagues to the south, which would have placed the half-moon on the lower Hudson between New York City and the Palisades of New Jersey. Palisades has the rise Palisades has the fun, come on over. Then they saw one of the Indians who had fled them during the encounter upriver the day before, and then two canoes full of armed men appeared and attacked the ship, quote, in recompense whereof we discharged six muskets and killed two or three of them. Then above a hundred of them came to a point of land to shoot at us. There I shot a falcon at them and killed two of them, whereupon the rest fled into the woods. And so on, with considerable ugliness. The North Jersey Indians were even tougher than those down the shore, which makes a certain sense if you've ever lived in the area. Jewett's narrative then reports that they got down two leagues beyond that place, roughly to Hoboken, and, quote, Anchored in a bay, clear from all danger of them on the other side of the river, where we saw a very good piece of ground. And hard by it there was a cliff that looked of the color of a white-green as though it were either copper or silver mine. And I think it to be one of them, by the trees that grow upon it, for they be all burned. And the other places are green as grass. It is on that side of the river that is called Manhattan. There we saw no people to trouble us and rode quietly all night and had much wind and rain. So there it is, Manhattan, the first reference anywhere to the center of New York City. By October 4th, the half moon was sailing back to Europe. But rather than going to Amsterdam, Hudson steered her to Dartmouth in England. Again, we know that he did this, but not why. The best guess is that the English half of his crew just wanted to get home. Regardless, this set off a diplomatic skirmish of a sort with the English trying to grab Hudson's charts, logbooks, and journals. Eventually, though, Hudson got them to Van Meteren and thereby to the Dutch East India Company. The Dutch, who in those days never missed an opportunity to exploit an opportunity, saw the importance of Hudson's discovery— Within two short years, Dutch explorers would be mapping the region, and by 1614, the Dutch would return to Manhattan. The Dutch Republic would officially establish the town of New Amsterdam there by 1624. There is an epilogue. Hudson would not live to see the importance of his third voyage because of the horror of his fourth. The next year back in England, he would raise another stake, Having checked off John Smith's hypothesis of a mid-Atlantic passage to the Pacific, Hudson would now bet everything on George Weymouth's theory that it lay beyond the Davis Strait. His determination was so great that it blinded him. Hudson and his 22 men sailed into Canada's Hudson Bay in 1610. After spending a no-doubt brutal winter on shore in James Bay, Hudson drove his men and his ship North into the ice, renewing his search for a Northwest Passage. By June, his men had had enough. Russell Shorto's account is harrowing. Quote, Hudson's arrogance was so supreme that he didn't see his end coming. Even as he was being lowered from the deck of his ship into the shallop, hands bound behind his back, "'dressed in a motley gown, as one of the mutineers would later testify. "'For they took him at daybreak as he stepped out of his cabin. "'He remained clueless. "'What do you mean by this?' he asked in bewilderment, "'as they bound him and told him that he would soon find out. "'He had egged and cajoled and lashed the twenty-two men onward, "'month upon month, as they fought a losing battle against the pack-ice,' As the shrouds and sails froze above them, as the food ran out, and the sightings of bears and seals on the white strip of the horizon stopped, as they were reduced to clamoring ashore and scavenging moss for sustenance. First their gums bled, then their teeth loosened. Toe by toe, frostbite ate its way into their flesh, so that many could no longer stand their pallets crowding every available space on board. Finally, they could take it no more. Besides him, the small party loaded into the shallop comprised the most desperately sick and those that had remained loyal to him, including his son John, still a boy. At some point after they were set adrift, after the ship had moved away from them into open water, her topsails fattening in a fresh wind, after he had watched her hull evaporate into the white hoar of early morning, leaving their small vessel to the elements, without food, water, or source of fire, and three hundred thousand square miles of ice-choked sea around them. His iron will must have finally caved in, and he would have been left then, before the cold ate its way into his blood and heart, To endure what must be any man's twin nightmares, watching his innocent child suffer and die because of his own folly, and contemplating the utter destruction of his life's ambition. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends. Spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice. Write us a nice review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. To stay up to date on announcements and other interesting stuff that doesn't make it into a podcast episode, you can follow me on Twitter and on the Facebook page for the podcast. This is a labor of love and your support is very motivating. And of course, you can reach me with Questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.